Welcome to the Healing Us podcast, your guide to unlocking the strength within. Are you ready to embark on a journey towards healing and well-being? The ultimate destination for mental health and addiction recovery awaits. We're talking stories of hope, different approaches to healing, and so much more. At Healing Us, we believe in the power of a connected community. Our facilities are located throughout New Jersey and Southwest Florida. We provide a long-term safe haven for anyone looking to achieve lifelong happiness. We invite you to join us, along with countless others, as we explore this journey together. Together, we can overcome any challenges and embrace a future filled with healing, hope, and happiness. Join us. Today, we're joined by Zach Peel. He is a house manager of a men's sober living. He works in the field of addiction. He's got an incredible journey of his own into recovery. He's a father. He found religion uh, during his journey and spirituality. He's really going to share a lot of that today. So welcome, Zach. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about your story. Like we want to hear you know, start from from some pinnacle moments and okay. just share a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, obviously, my name is Zach. Um, Jewish community refers to me as Yitzhak. Um, means filled with laughter. I think that's a suiting name for me. Um, with that being said, I my... Ju- that. That's yeah, happy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yitzhak, Yitzhak. Um, which translates to Isaac. So it's a long thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyhow, um, yeah, so my journey, it's been a long one ups and downs in the in the and up until this last two years more downs than ups um i grew up um all over the place with having a father that was in the military for 31 years um i always envy these people that have like these where i'm from you know they have these these upbringings where they knew these friends forever and they 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 have all these memories intertwined with um their their upbringing where they're from whereas for me we moved pretty frequently I went to five or six different high schools um, I think that that's you know incredible because a lot of people think about the veterans and thank you to your father for his service to the country and um but obviously you know with his dedication there is a family on the other side of that and you know how that was kind of a really big part of your journey as well so moving around um and you know talk to us a little bit about when 9-11 hit how that altered your childhood um, schedule and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, they say when your 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 father or your mother serves in the military. My mother also was in the military for a couple of years um, before I was born. But when you're when you have a parent in the military, you know your family's serving too. Mm-hmm. There's kind of that aspect. They're sacrificing as well. Um, so I had a normal childhood um, for the most part. Um, uh, uh, no abuse, so to speak. Um, that's not part of my story. Um, I started developing some behavioral changes and I think some obvious, uh, some obviously um, alarming character traits, so to speak, um, around eight or nine or 10, around that time frame, my, right before, my later adolescence before I became a teenager. Um, that's when my 9-11 happened, obviously the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, my father, with the nature of what he did, he did reconnaissance for the Navy. Um, he was... Um, in charge of surveillance and stuff like that with um, different planes and on the ground. And so eight or nine years old, 9-11 happened. And my father was gone. Was gone. Um, he had been on deployment even when, you know, when I was younger than that, but I was really too young to really know what was going on. That's when it started hitting to me like, my dad's not going to be here. 
Um, it served nine, 10 months at a time. Nine, 10 months out of a time. You know, I remember, you know, I shared this with Kim on her podcast that like it, it really hit me when I was about 10 or 11 and my, we were on like a runway, a flight strip and my father knelt down and was like, you need to be the man of the house while I'm gone. And he, he obviously had great intentions with that. He was trying to lift me up, but that really resonated with me. Like what is being a man? Um, when is my dad coming home? Will I see him again? Right. You know, it's not like he was just going on a business trip for four months. He was right. going to a hostile territory where, you know, you don't know if your dad's coming home. Mm-hmm. And all my friends, we grew up on military bases. Um, so all my friends, their dads were gone too. So we all had this inherent connection of um, not seeing our fathers. Right. So we kind of, um, we we began trying to self-medicate and look for love in other ways. So I instantly gravitated to older guys that were in high school, that were 18, 17. Is that a common thing on the basis you think that that children and uh, teens suffer with because oh, of that? Yeah. yeah. I think the rates, I don't, I can't tell you statistics, but I know in general, like um, drug abuse among military children, especially this day and age is really high. Not only do you not have that father figure there to guide you, right. but you have kind of feelings of abandonment. Wow. Um, so all you my, need to do better as a society with that. Yeah. Right? And this was, this was back in the early two thousands, mid two thousands. Mm-hmm. We, we weren't as progressive as we are even now, which mm-hmm. we still have a lot of work to do, but with mental health and trauma, um, and I think reaching out to kids. So yeah. it was really, there was, Kim had asked that too. There were, there really wasn't a lot of resources. Huh. Um, it was really just kind of back then too. It was kind of like, you just man up. Right. You know, that was kind of instilled in me that it's, it's, if he, if, since he's serving in the military, he's overseas, he's sacrificing and providing for our family. I don't have room to complain. Right. Uh, I mean, that's so much pressure to put on a ten. It is. It is a lot of pressure. Yeah. At any age uh, as a young adult. And yeah. It's like, it is not traditional. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's really hard. And it's amazing to me. I, I'm curious. I'm, I'm not familiar with the resources they have now, if they do have any, but I feel like that's a gap we should all be held responsible for to an extent, you know, as, as a community. To, yeah. To support. They do have like more spousal support and stuff like that now and PTSD awareness. And I think, more like family groups, but even in general, I think it just is kind of the price you pay with the military. I think there's only so many resources you can put on the fact that a parent's in and out of a child's life every nine months out of right. the year. So um, what happened? So you're going through that. Um, 9-11 happens. Your dad's off. My dad's deployment. Uh, my mom was, um, I also want to make this clear, I have great parents. Um, they dealt with the pain of, you know, being away from their, their, their spouse as well. My mom was drinking a lot. Um, and when my dad would come home, he would drink a lot right. to deal with the trauma of it. So inherently, as a 12, 13-year-old getting a little older now, yeah. that became what I thought an adult does to me- to, to, to help themselves, to, to, to cope. And not to your parents' fault yeah. by any means. No, right? no. They, they, they were doing the best they could. Absolutely. They were yeah. doing the best they could. and um, Struggling with their own issues. They were but... struggling with their own issues. So I began drinking regularly mm-hmm. at a young age, 13, 14. Um, and I knew instantly I had found something that worked better than any sport, better than little league, better than playing guitar, better than, um, going on a hike that when I consumed something, I put, I put a substance in my body, I felt pain slip away and I, and I, and I wanted that and it, um, it progressed. So was started off as drinking with my friends and we had a lot of access to alcohol. All of our dads were in the military. It's what they did. So we could. I mean, they had so many beers in the fridge, we could take seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and they never even noticed. Mm. 
you know, they had so many fits of liquor and stuff that right. we didn't, we didn't have to do the thing where you mark it with a, you know, and know how much they have. I mean, there was, it was just copious amounts. There was no way they would know. And, um, also the fact that when my dad would come home they were, my parents, I think were so focused on catching up on their own lost time that there was a lot of time where they didn't really know what I was doing. Right. Um, so throughout high school, we moved a lot. I, every time I got comfortable and made a friend group, I would have to make a new friend group that becomes harder and harder, especially when like I did a lot of sports, but when you're constantly moving to new towns, you're the new kid. So you're not a favorite. You have to earn your place on that sports team or whatever. It just became so daunting. Not so much. It's hard to find your own identity. Oh, totally. You're like, you know, how you look at colleges and they've got this, this, and this. It's like, how do I know what I fit into? I haven't been in one place long. You just you just nailed it. And that's that's the biggest thing is I never knew where I fit in. Um, But I did come towards the end of high school, find that no matter where I went, the easiest place to fit in was with the other kids who were struggling to fit in and that were using drugs. That was easy because we all did drugs. We had that in common. It was very easy. We picked up drugs. Yeah, yeah, we did them. Um, We we had a low standard for um, our character and, and how we and what we valued. It was just really easy to get in with that friend group. Um, eventually, you know, we I started dabbling in harder stuff, coke and, and, and opiates as I'm, you know, p- pill form, Vicodin, Oxycontin, stuff like that. Um, so to that to the point where I was ready to graduate high school and I was going off to college, I had no spiritual foundation, no character, no, um, had no idea who I was, but all I knew was I liked to get high. It was just what it was. I knew that that worked every single time I did it. And because I was enabled by my parents and, you know, I never had money issues and something like that. I never saw the bad side to substance abuse. Right. To me, it was just la-di-da. Well, it was where you fit in. It, it was, was where I Yeah. Yeah. It was a good time at that point. It's interesting. If you look at his history and the way it's just, most societies form, you usually have the group that doesn't know where they belong, but ends up doing, you know, finding comfort yeah. in, in drugs in that group. You find the group in the middle. And then I was going to say the kind of the polar opposite side of that is is people that are very uh, rooted from a young age in religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's their group. Right. Yeah. And we'll get into that later. So it's it's uh, that's where you found yourself off to college, off to college, um, already a terrible drug habit, alcoholic. Um, that's when I was first introduced to heroin um, and methamphetamine. It was, it was about 20 years old. Maybe at this point I was on my way out of college. Already. I was say, yeah. <laughs> Usually. Yeah, uh, heroin and methamphetamine abuse don't really go hand in hand with earning your bachelor's degree or your master's degree. So um, at that point, I had burned all the GI. And my, my poor father, I mean, he gave me the GI Bill, because which which you get for college. Mm. I mean, I had every re- outlet to to be successful. Yeah. I mean, he did everything he could for me, and I burned it um, selfishly on drugs and alcohol. It wasn't selfish, though, at the time. Like, you were struggling. Internally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a kind way to put it. Uh, I guess I'm still learning to forgive myself for that. I do have some guilt with that because, you know, I have siblings, I have a That's brother right. and a sister that they could have used that money probably and they, and they they did make better life choices so that could have really helped them out. Um, so I do feel like I kind of detracted from them. Sibling perspective is a great perspective. I'm a sibling of somebody in recovery. So, uh-huh. um, you know, my brother brothers uh, kind of went down the dark route and uh, on the other side, you are angry until you're not. Yeah, you you're know, angry. And that forgiveness yeah. takes takes. A- it takes a minute. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously with saying heroin and meth, it does not take long yeah. for life to crumble and end up in places you never thought you'd end up living in hotels, 
um, abusive relationships, doing terrible things. I was committing a lot of crimes. I was breaking into cars, breaking into houses. This isn't, this was not something that was supposed to happen to me, so to speak. You know, I had every tool in life growing up to succeed. Um, but with that being said, sometimes our circumstances change and I, and I, and I chose a route that, um, I, I had to lay in the bed that I made. So, um, it didn't take long that I just became like a bottom of the barrel junkie. Like I, I've shared this too. Like, so a lot of people have these grandiose images that they were picking up big quantities and they were, they were, you know, involved in the drug trade. Like they were traveling, you know, they were like, there was some, uh, grandiose aspect to, to it, but not me. I was just a bottom of the barrel junkie trying to get 50 to hundred dollars a day just to feed my habit. Um, my life was going nowhere. I couldn't hold down a job for more than three months. Um, this was all throughout my twenties. I'm 31 now. So from 22 to about 29, my twenties were just filled with drug abuse, uh, misery, suffering, a lot of jail, guilt. incarceration, guilt, shame, it all piled on. And it, within that time period, you also became a father and I became a father, became a husband. And that's when things changed. Um, so I got married to my wife a year before my daughter was born. I guess this was back in 2021. So yeah, coming up on three or four years, I should know that, but I'm only human. <laughs> we won't tell her. A lot of drugs. Until she watches the episode. Oh, she's, she's totally aware of it. <laughs> she's aware of it. She knows how I am. Um, memory, like I said, a lot of a lot of overdoses. My memory's not the best, but um, yeah. So we did get married. And um, at that point, you know, things were looking better. That was when I finally felt, at that point, I had had about four or five months clean. I had gotten out of a treatment program and I thought I finally had it. We were living in Savannah, Georgia. Things were looking better. I was getting married. Now I was finally doing the things you're supposed to be right. doing as an adult. Um, and I thought that would keep me sober. My wife's great, so supportive. And um, unfortunately, uh, my wife, who deals, deals with um, some mental um, mental health issues of her own, um, just like I do, I began, I relapsed and I began using heroin and, and, and crack and meth again. And my wife walked in on me one day doing it. And unfortunately... I, at the time, did not have good enough character or moral value or, I guess, really sobriety to care that I was influencing her, and I let her try it. And um, that was the beginning of my wife's drug addiction. Up until that point, she had never done drugs. That's nothing I'm happy about. That's nothing I'm proud of. Um, that's something I still kind of beat myself up for to this day. My wife was on track at that time to going to Colorado State or something for medicine. She wanted to become a doctor. Um, she came from a good family. Um, and then she met me. So I became, became kind of a burden on her life in a sense. Um, we began using drugs heavily for about a year. We were living in hotels. Her parents got keen to the fact that she was using. To my parents, it was, oh, same old, same old. Right. To her parents, it was very traumatic. They're, they're, they're now, you know, daughter was now doing drugs. Her husband's the her not husband, the person. Her, no, her, her husband. And my, like and, their worst name. And I'll say this to you, you know, I, I um, being Jew, I'm Jewish. Um, my wife is Indian. She comes from a... Um, a heavily, um, they're not Hindu, they're Catholic, um, where they come from in India, it's, um, a heavy Catholic community. So there was already a cultural issue there right. that she didn't marry an Indian guy. I think this probably, it's still a problem it's to this day, unfortunately, it. this, but this exasperated it yeah. that we told you this would happen if you know you went with a guy like this. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, I was not the ideal son-in-law. Um, we had eloped when we got married we did not have a grand wedding or anything like that. Um, and my family was just kind of like, they were accepting of her because they, they were like, oh, maybe she can do something good for him. Right. Um, nothing else has worked. 
So um, we struggled with addiction for about a year, year and a half. And um, then we found out she was pregnant. Um, that was the moment it kind of got real for me. Um, I had had some some months here and there of sobriety and um, knew 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 what knew that there was more to life, obviously, than doing drugs at this point. Um, but I really wasn't. Um, life was coming. Life fast. was coming fast. Life was life coming. Was really coming fast. in nine months. It was coming in nine months, and it wasn't about me. And my dad called me, and we didn't speak too much. And he was like, "I hope you know it's not about you anymore." Like, it's not about you going to get high and, like, what you do to your family right now. Like, you have, you're bringing a kid into this world. Um, it's Once again, my father, it's time to man up. Right. That's what he told and me. And that is a perfect segue as well for our topic of, with Valentine's Day coming up, talking about love and family yeah. and recovery and, you know, navigating that. So, yeah. you know, what happened next? And now I can transition to, to the positive, you know. Um, found out my wife was pregnant. Um, like to say I got sober that day. Made a change. So I'm going to be a man now. No, it didn't work out. Um, kept using intentions. my wife. Uh, it was enough for my wife, though. She got sober the second she found out she was pregnant. Wow. Then she did not use again. She, um, um, and I knew that was the woman I was marrying. I knew she was that. She was always my strength in the beginning. Now I'm a source of strength for her, which is a great feeling for me because for the longest time I just took from this poor girl um, and and drained her. But anyhow, so um, I. I Went and got clean, went to treatment about three or four months into her pregnancy and got out, um, was sober. Um, I had relapsed about a week before our daughter was born. The burden came back on. I didn't, I, I just hadn't grown enough spiritually. My, the spirituality and the religious aspect of my life was still missing. At this point, I was still trying to do it on my own. I was uh, just trying to use Suboxone uh, maintenance and I was trying to handle it strictly from just a... a you hadn't reached into that. I, I hadn't reached within. I was using all f external physical right. um, elements to try to cure my addiction. I think that that's a, that's a really important piece because so many people don't. Because once you dig deep, that's, the, that's, that's the when the growth work. really starts happening. Yeah. You know? Um, so... Um, and I'm not, I'm not against maintenance or anything like that. It just it never... Really, when I was using um, Suboxone and Methadone, they never allowed me to really have to be truly like in, like deal with some some things. Mm -hmm. So I had went to a detox um, January of two years ago, coming up this January. Um, I did not have insurance. I'm from the South primarily where we don't have as many social programs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have insurance, you better just pray to God that you get clean or you go to prison. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's your, that's, that's your treatment kind of outlooks really. There's not a lot of, uh, um, low income funding and right. stuff like that. We don't have that. So, um, I, luckily I have a program called project save lives. I had overdosed on December 14th, 2022. Okay. Um, and with it becoming the new year, they had all this money for a grant. It's called project save lives in Jacksonville, Florida, the lucky three people, the first three to overdose hit the lottery. Wow. They get a they get a scholarship to go to detox. That's horrible. It is pretty sad. It's terrible is. incentive. Um I'm glad I, it exists. But I'm glad it here. exists. I'm glad it exists. Well, um so yeah. I got that ticket. I was the uh, you know I say it I was a lucky overdose. I did survive. Um and I got that scholarship. They came into the hospital where like the doctor was just like, so what do you want to do, dude? And I was just like, I, I I'd like to get help. And he was like that's what I wanted Good to answer. hear, you know, because other times in the past, I'd be like, just give me some Narcan and let me out of here. Right. Um, but I, you know, I knew that I now had a two month old. My daughter had been born. And at this point, my wife had been up to live with um, my in-laws in New York. That's what brought me up here. 
Um, and I was like, yeah, this is my chance. Mm -hmm. Now, now I can't use the excuse. Well, I can't get help. I want help and I don't have insurance. Right. Um, it was right there for me. It was a grant. Went to detox for a couple of weeks and I got sober. I've been sober since. Um, yeah, thank you. It was a new year. It was, I set goals for myself. I went to a, a sober living kind of work program in Savannah, Georgia called Sober Living America for the beginning for about the first year of my recovery. Um, they got me a job and like a warehouse and um, it was really good. It gave me the foundation. It was, it was stuff to build off of. I was working now. Maybe it was for $13, $15 an hour, but I was working. I wasn't just taking from people. Right. And that was big. So I... so that's how you made it up to, obviously, your in-laws are up here. Yeah. And that, did you just find us on the internet? How'd you make your way to Jersey? Well, that's where, like, the mental health aspect kind of comes into it. So although I had developed a year of sobriety, I was not taking my mental health serious. I was working at a homeless shelter as a peer report, uh, recovery specialist. I was surrounded by a lot of trauma doing that. And I didn't realize how vulnerable I was to being around trauma like that still because I hadn't processed my own. I was just so happy to be a year sober, uh, so happy to be working, so happy that things were going on track that I never really addressed a lot of my underlying issues, my bipolar disorder, my trauma. So um, I had had a um, kind of a psychiatric breakdown in March of this year. Um, a lot of couples were coming in and I was reliving my wife and I's trauma of living on the streets. I think I, I had shared that with Kim. Um, I began having like blackouts in the bathroom at work where I was just reliving some trauma. I had went to see a health provider to get medication to deal with this stuff. Um, he had prescribed to me, he, he was an older guy and he was kind of an older approach to addiction. And he was like, you're well, opiates are your problem. You're cured. You're, you're right. sober. Uh, let me give you 90 out of an a month. Oh, man. Uh, these, the, I can promise you, you won't be having any issues with anxiety. I was very naive. And because I wasn't as sound um, spiritually yet, this is kind of where I had that moment. Um, I, at this point, I had become a religious Jew and I was um, practicing in synagogue and stuff like that. But I still didn't acknowledge my mental health issues. I wasn't going to therapy. So anyhow... Um, I took those for a few days, had some blackouts. It was not good. I don't necessarily view it as a relapse because I wasn't inherently just trying to get high. I was truly, genuinely searching for help and, and thought I could take Ativan just like an opioid addict takes uh, Suboxone, you it's know? It's so wild that you said that because so many doctors and places just instantly prescribe. Oh, yeah. And you didn't think twice. Yeah. Even at Relevance, we go through our medical team, goes through a very uh, extensive process of um, of, of testing, of blood testing, of DNA testing, because they don't want to just prescribe something and then hopefully it works. Yeah, hope for the best. six months it doesn't, then yeah. they got to switch your medication. They want to find, if you need medication for a mental health pr problem or something you're suffering with, they want to find that exact medication that's going to match your DNA. That's awesome. So that you're not dealing with that yeah. continued blackout and, and you know, highlighted anxiety. It's, um, I can't, it, it blows my mind, and that's where most people's problems start. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Say so, definitely. So luckily, um, after that, I had went to a psychiatric hospital for a couple of weeks and my wife and I were talking the sober living I was at. Unfortunately, someone had got their hands on some of my medication and it did not look good. Um, it also to them looked like I was just on a full blown relapse. Mm. Um, and um, I decided like something's got to change. So I ended up in a hotel room after I got out of the psychiatric hospital for a couple of weeks. And my wife began calling every single sober living from from 
South Jersey. I'm still learning the geography of Jersey. Uh, from South Jersey to Buffalo, New York. They wow. live in New York City. I'm glad you landed here. You wouldn't need a fur uh, coat. I, I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> and I, I tell that to people. I mean, I'm so happy I'm here in New Jersey. I had this perspective being from the South that mm. people from New Jersey were inherently Yankees and were really mean and uh, would it, would it, had no hospitality. That's Keep just... That, but no, New Jersey's <laughs> been great to me. I love it here. Uh, a lot more Jewish people here. And I also didn't grow up around as many Jewish people. I'd never yeah. been around Jewish neighborhoods. That was all, this is all new to me. It's awesome. So um, yeah, but my wife called about 50 to 100 places and every place was like, you need a thousand, you know, $1,500. We got to interview you first and then we'll think about it. And I'm like, dude, I'm not flying up from Savannah, Georgia to uh, Secaucus, New Jersey, just to hear like, no, you're not it. Like, I don't have those resources. Like, I need to know I have a certain thing. Um, CFC was the only one that was willing to go out on a limb and do a phone interview with me and give me the opportunity to come up here. They knew my wife and daughter was up here. They knew that I had some prolonged recovery. They knew how serious I was about it. And they took my word for it. I came up here. And um, it's been nothing but a blessing since. I'm still sober. Um, I now have the ability to see my wife and daughter regularly. When I was down in Georgia, we were seeing each other. We saw each other in that year maybe twice. It was really hard. I missed her first steps. Um, and um, yeah, now I'm a house manager at CFC. Um, uh, Alyssa blessed me with that opportunity back in the summer. And it's been it's been great. Um, I now work for Discovery Institute, which is a rehabilitation center in Marlboro, New Jersey. Um, I started off as a tech and they saw my ability with the clients and, and, and um, I think addressing and, and, and being empathetic with them. And they thought it would be a good idea they thought it would be a good idea. Yeah, they promoted me to um, an admissions coordinator. Awesome. I now work from home, which cool. for someone with a two-year-old, and we're going to be transitioning into moving back in together this that's spring. Fantastic. It's such a blessing. And um, that's kind of how I ended up here. And I've just been running, hit the ground running. Well, what a story. And I mean, it's just the beginning, really, you yeah, know, for yeah. you and your family. And, um, you know, on that note, I'd love to talk about kind of you and your, your, with your wife and, um, you know, First of all, her journey, she had to have her own journey, right, to yeah. find her way back and forgive. And and how have you guys been navigating, uh, pursuing your own path and to, to health and wellness and recovery, but also forming a union again and kind of making sure that you're both staying on track? That's, that's a great question. Um, it's something that kind of develops day to day. Um, obviously, you know, I touched on, I had never done therapy or anything like that. We, um, currently have a Jewish, um, marriage counselor, so to speak. I, I mean, it's irrelevant that he's Jewish, but kind of is because he, he knows what kind of family, um, values I kind of want to have in our family when we're working together. Uh, but we're now doing marriage counseling. Um, I'm doing individual therapy. My wife's doing individual therapy. So we're both now growing as individuals. Um, I had, she'd always told me, and you guys had touched on this in prior interviews, I'm never going to learn to love her until I can learn to love myself. Mm -hmm. And now I can say I love myself and um, I love my wife. And um, it's challenging. You know, she doesn't get as much time to work on her recovery as I do because she's raising our two-year-old. She does have the help of my in-laws, but she's 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 kind of a single mom right now. She's doing it on her own. She's, she's making that sacrifice um, because I asked her, I told her, like, I need a year here at CFC, I think, to become the husband and the father um, that I need to become like I, I'm I, and I and I've shared this too with the nature of fentanyl addiction my next relapse will be my last mm -hmm. I'm 100% believing in that that my next relapse it's no longer a choice. it's no longer a choice um you know Kim and I had discussed that like you're we're actively 
committing suicide when we go relapse next time. Yeah. It's just what's going to happen. And um, there's, a, there's a very serious nature to it. And my wife is, like I said, such an amazing woman. She was understanding of that. Um, not a lot of, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of eligible men out there. You know, my wife at any point in time could have been like, no, nope, yeah, off to her. yeah, like could have could have left me not, you know, and, and definitely found a better spousal support. You know, our daughter was young enough, you know, she could have found someone else to raise our daughter with her. Um, but she believes in me and she sees something in me. And I'm now becoming that Zach that she had always seen, I guess. That's incredible. Uh, and um, yeah, so we're um, we're working on our, our therapy right now. What would you, you know, what advice would you give to somebody who's, whether both partners are in relationships or one partner, I'm sorry, in recovery, okay. or one person's in recovery, one person's a normie, what, you know, if they're, they're trying to seek support, they're trying, they want to fight for each other, what kind of advice would you give them from a, from a marital perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think relationships and early recovery, um, I can speak a lot on that and, and as well as, you know, my advice on it. Um, I think when there's marriage involved, it's inherently a little different than if they're just dating for a few months when they're getting into recovery. Um, I, I, I don't, just from my perspective and I think from my experience, I think you need a year of recovery before you delve into a relationship. That's just my, I've seen that to benefit people greatly. You cannot properly I think um function in a relationship in early recovery because you're still learning how to function as an individual right you need to have a strong foundation as an individual and in, in your own identity before you jump into a relationship I think that can be one of the most enticing things to do to develop a bond with someone on an intimate level I totally get it and, I, and, and I'm not saying there's not outliers there's obviously exceptions mm -hmm. There are people that get in relationships in early recovery and they, they they blossom together, whether one's sober and the other's, you know, a normie, so to speak. Yeah. That term. Um, but I just think you need to tread lightly. I think it's a I think it's a I think in early recovery, although that relationship with someone else is, is enticing, a relationship with something greater than yourself is more beneficial. Yeah. For me, that was my walk in Judaism with God before I've before I've grown with my wife to the point we are now. I grew as an individual and in my synagogue. And you recognize, hey, I need a year here. Like, and I need, yeah. Time. And that was a hard pill to swallow because, yeah. I mean, I want to be there for my daughter. And, of course. You want to move back in, right? Yeah, now, I want right? to move back in. I'm cured. and um, But this is such a long road and such a long process. and um, That's growth and recognizing that. I, I agree and I appreciate that. And I think it's just right now we're sacrificing for the greater good. Right. You know, come March, our foundation is going to be secure. It's going to be strong financially. Well, and CFCs helps with that. You know, when you become a house manager, they help you out. Um, financially with you know giving you the responsibility of managing the guys in the house and you get that you know kind of rent cut and that kind of helps you that's what i love about cfc is it helps you you know elevate you don't just stay stagnant you're not just going to meetings for the sake of meeting me going to meetings like jess has said they give you meetings you can go to it's optional you know you choose what you want to do and i just think cfc does a great job at elevating people on just a spiritual level to just become a better person it's not just about sobriety it's about becoming a better person and i don't think a lot of other programs really encapsulate that. Totally. As well as it's, it's a self, it's a self-help, self-motivation. Yeah, program. totally. Which we'll is a give you the tools, thing. but you got to do the you got to do the work, and that's yeah. a beautiful thing. So you know, religion is such an important part of your recovery, and who you've become. And I know you touched a little bit about how you and your wife have different views, and um, you know, family beliefs and things like that. Talk to us a little bit about first of all your you know passion and where that kind of stemmed from, and then as well as how you and your wife were navigating those differences. And with, uh, you know, your, your daughter, what's, what's kind okay. of your journey there? Um, so my journey with, um, 
religion started after I was incarcerated. I had, um, you can be ethnically Jewish, you can be religiously Jewish. A lot of people don't realize that there's, it, it's an ethno religion, so to speak. Um, so although I, it has been in my blood, I was never really a practicing Jew. Um, when I was incarcerated though, a rabbi came to speak with me. Um, and I found just a sense of, um, enlightenment and it's something that I had only felt, you know, maybe using drugs. It gave me the same feeling kind of as using a substance. I felt, I felt the idea that something was greater than myself. Um, the, the idea that I've done the things I've done. Um, that, that maybe a higher power or God, Hashem, whatever you want to refer to him as, has put me on that journey to help others that, that, that he knew I could handle that, handle that by leaning on him, um, was a beautiful thing for me because now that no longer was I guilty about the things I've done. Um, they were now a plus, right. you know, it flipped the script. Um, I became a religious Jew, um, when, while I was in there and I have been since, um, what that entails to me is living, uh, having a code of conduct I live by now. Um, before I had, I had grown up with good morals. My family, my parents taught me right and wrong, but I, as an adult, I didn't have any moral fiber. I didn't have any good character traits. I didn't have any, you know, code of conduct that I live by. And now uh, with the Jewish community and being involved with that, um, not only am I around like-minded people that we all share a same belief, a very powerful belief, but um, I have a support system. You know, I have people that, want to look out for their their jewish brother or their jewish son in need and um that sense of community is big before that my sense of community was sticking needles in your arm and totally going hotel to hotel room robbing each other Literally, that was my community yeah that was my community and, and it's good uh, to have that community you know outside of uh, it's your own community that you it totally know, is you know? and and i and i want to be more involved with it um as you guys know drugs do not know any creed any um sex or um you know, racial background and none of that, none of that's really, um, it's non-discriminatory. It's a non-discriminatory thing, the disease of addiction. And, um, I know there are young, um, Jewish kids that are, especially probably in like an Orthodox community, something like that, that are suffering with addiction. And because the Orthodox community lives by, um, such strict mitzvahs, character traits, and they honor as many mitzvahs or um, blessings that they can, it can be really hard to speak up because when you're living like that, you live such a strict code that right. you're doing the right thing, whether it's eating certain things or waking up and saying this at a certain time. Right. A lot of people don't know this. There's even prayers after you go pee in Judaism that you have to say. And in the Orthodox community, they follow that. Right. I mean, there's it's a very strict way of life. And doesn't it doesn't mean they don't deal with it. It doesn't mean they don't deal with it. And it right. also doesn't mean and it also doesn't mean that they have places to reach out. Right. Um, I will say there are places like in Lakewood, New Jersey that are opening up and it is becoming more accepting. Um, I, I, I do want to say that in my, I do feel like I can help bridge that gap a little bit. Okay. I do want to go back to um, like adult Hebrew schooling um, to be able to connect with Orthodox children a little more, you know, on a, um, obviously I need to be able to know more about that walk in Judaism, right. but I do, I got the drug part down. Yes. So to be able to bridge that gap and help other young Jewish guys, even non-Jewish people, I want to make that clear too. Um, but to help young kids not make some of the mistakes I made, and um, be able to, and that's a big thing with my daughter too. Like I want to see her, you know, not have to live through my burden, you know, my, my, my mistakes and become her own person. But obviously I think even I went through that. So my daughter can um, become her own person. With religion being such a pillar in your life, like, yeah. and your wife being Catholic, yeah. how, what kind of, you know, 
are you guys supportive of each other's beliefs? Is there conflict? Yeah, I know I got off a little no, there. That was yeah, no, so I, amazing. Uh, I wanted to touch. That's a good thing. Well. So obviously, you know, culturally, culturally, and racially, there is kind of a rift in our families. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say my fa- family is a little more accepting of her than hers is of mine. Um, her um, her family, particularly her mother, is not too fond of the idea that I'm a practicing Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, being a, um, and that's just the circumstance. And I want to make this clear. I don't think any, um, people that are Catholic or Muslim or whatever inherently don't like certain people. I just know from, well, I think that brings us back to America, the melting pot. Yeah, That's yeah. a very new generational, you know, idea that there's cross-cultural yeah, family. Totally. Right? And that's, that's, it's that's, that's, that's a, yeah. But, and that's also, I think the beauty of America Absolutely. that we have that, that should be the beauty. That shouldn't be totally. a, a frowning point, you know, a bad point. That should be an awesome point that we have. This. And I do think in two generations from now, it'll be it a little will. different. And I, and I, and that's why I love my, my daughter, you know, the fact that she has, she's biracial and comes from different religious backgrounds. I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, as far as that, my wife did grow up Catholic. So she has her own perceived notions on religion. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not a practicing Catholic now. She we she knows that I want to raise our daughter in the Jewish culture and the Jewish customs as far as um not even the culture but the religion and she is okay with that. I even myself will let my daughter decide that. I'm gonna guide her on that journey, you know, through her through her adolescence. But come the time that she's a teenager or so when you know she's becoming her own woman, that'll be on her to decide if she wants to continue yeah. that lifestyle. I'm kind of, you know, I do think it is important as a parent to um, influence her as a child that that yeah. this is a good way of life and I am passionate that it is but when it when the time comes my daughter will make that decision mm-hmm. um there the, it's a little overwhelming for my wife um she's yeah. still she's went to synagogue with me a few times um she's she's not the biggest fan of religion which is totally fine with me um that's, but I think that's beautiful that you can uh, be open to that and you're not just so you know, you can follow your own belief in your own path in your own community, but you're not necessarily needing your other support system to no. be yeah. at all. She's her own person. Whatever works for her, I do encourage her. You know, it'll be hard because, you know, in recovery, we have those down days. And my, me inherently, uh, my advice to her is like a Torah scripture or or something like a, a, a Chabad rabbi's outlook on life. And she's like, dude. Like, I don't, that this, that just went right over her head. So I do struggle with finding ways to kind of um, console her and, and, and help her when she's down that aren't inherently Jewish, like, you know, perspective on things. But And I mean, to your point earlier with her kind of, you know, taking a bit, a lot of the heavy lifting while you have been working yeah. on yourself, you know, when you guys do move in together, that's a great opportunity for her to find her own community of support. And then also, you know, with CFC, we have all the retreats coming up and she can go camping with you on, on the side. That's, you no, you nailed it. That's, I can't wait for me to get to step in as a father and take over a lot of those daddy duties. Mm-hmm. Um, I relish in being a father so much. It's it's my life's greatest purpose and which aligns a lot with Judaism. Bringing children in this world is, you know, the biggest blessing, you know, that's kind of their outlook on that. And um, yeah, I, I want to give my wife a break. Um, she also is a social worker. She works very hard. She's been a nurse. Um, so she's always helping people. I think my wife deserves a lot of time to herself, you know, come this March. So yeah, it'd be great. It works both ways. I'll get a lot of time to make up for lost time with my daughter and have this one-on-one father daughter time where my wife can go and explore and meet the CFC community. Cause I, I, even when I leave in March, I'll still be heavily involved. Um, CFC is where, where I'm home. Um, that's who gave me a chance when I had nowhere to go. And, um, yeah, I look forward for my wife to get to find herself a little like I am right now. And 
and and that's a beautiful thing that CFC offers that. And I know that she'll love a lot of CFC's approach on recovery. It's it's um it's very innovative. It's 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 kind of groundbreaking in a lot of their approach on things. It's not like any other sober living I've been in. So awesome. Well, thank you here. so much, Zach. Yeah, thank you. Share your story. It's amazing. Um, just one final question: If you have one thing to say to a young child or adolescent on, you know, an army base and their parents are making that ultimate sacrifice for all of us. What's one word of advice or like, you know, sentence that you would love to share with them? That's a good one. Um, you know, um, Dan does that exercise like your inner child or whatever. And I guess I, when we did that, it was really like, I thought about my inner child and what that was like. So my advice to a young teenager that's on a military base, whether it's in Kuwait or San Diego or, you know, um, uh, North Washington, um, I utilize your resources first and foremost, um, find out what resources are out there. Um, but really know that this is temporary. It, it will pass. Um, be proud of the fact that your father or your mother is sacrificing for the family and doing what they need to do. Find strength through that. Don't, don't view that as, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a force of weakness. Use that as a force of strength. If you have siblings, I definitely recommend bonding with them. They're, you know, blood is, 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 is big in life. You know, your family and, and who you grow up with. Um, focus on school. Focus on what you can control. And that's a big aspect in a lot of things. So if you're young and you know your father's overseas, you can't control that. You're not going to control what's going to happen to him over there either. Um, but what you can control is being the best son that you are a daughter that you can be in your given circumstances. Um, like I said, build a strong support group, get good friends, hang out with the right people and, um, cherish every moment you get with your, with your, with your father or your mother when they're back from overseas. And, um, like I said, it's a big thing. It's temporary. Um, it's only going to make you stronger. Um, I think being separated from my parents like that growing up has helped me deal with this new geographical separation from my wife. You know, I never at the time did I think, how could this benefit Coming full circle. In that coming full circle, CFC, which I just found out what that meant a month ago, (laughs) believe it or not. And I was too embarrassed to ask anyone what it meant. So I just, it was my head formulating all the ways to say what this acronym could possibly mean. Uh, Come full circle. So it'll come full circle. This, what you're sacrificing right now can end up making you a 10 times stronger person in the end. And use it it as something to be proud of. And um, obviously, thank your parents for their service. And that's really all I got. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. All right.